0: One, two, three.
1: Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast that connects you to our guests using the songs that have touched their lives. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Kaniri. Our guest today is Rich Orloff. Rich is a playwright living in New York City. His website bio says he's one of the most popular unknown playwrights in the country and that his plays have received over 2,000 productions, numerous awards, and, quote, oodles of laughter. Rich's full length plays have had over 300 productions and have been presented in cities all across the country and in Canada, England, Spain, France, the Netherlands. Germany, Austria, Switzerland, Italy, Serbia, Greece, Romania, Bulgaria, Israel, South Africa, India, Malaysia, Australia, and New Zealand. I was determined to say all of that in one breath, and I did it. He's author of more than a dozen one-acts and 80 short plays. His short works have had over 1,800 productions on six of the seven continents and a staged reading in Antarctica. Before becoming a playwright, Rich wrote for newspapers, magazines, radio, TV, industrial films, and educational videos. While in Kosovo in 2000, Rich wrote the children's play Snow White and the Seven Dwarves Fight Tuberculosis for Doctors of the World. Born and raised in Chicago and a graduate of Oberlin College in Ohio, Rich currently lives in New York City. He says he likes to get out of town frequently to remind himself what the rest of the world is like, like here in Fort Myers, where he is presenting his one-man show, It's a Beautiful Wound, and to watch the opening of his full-length, mostly a comedy called Engagement Rules, at theater conspiracy at the Alliance for the Arts. But that's beside the point because we're here for the song stories. Hey there, Rich. Hi, Mike. How you doing?
0: I'm doing okay. How awesome. are you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for doing this. This is My our pleasure. second one today. We're having a ball, um, and I'm caffeinated. Um, prior to the beginning of his career, this is from Wikipedia. As a playwright, Orloff appeared on the game show Match Game 77 in body language. Oh, yes, that, that is true. <laughs> what, what can you Everything tell us is about that, that experience at this point?
0: Um, I was just out of college, so if people want to do the math, they can probably figure out how old I am, and. Um, yeah, I, I knew then I wanted to be a writer. I wasn't quite sure if it was playwright or not. And I needed to make some money. And what better way to make money than appearing on a game show? There's no downside, no loss other than possible embarrassment. And um, what was particularly exciting, I was working at a bookstore in L.A. And I was fired. Um the, the, the manager of the bookstore, an ex-Marine, and I just weren't kind of on the Ex-Marine same wavelength. marine bookstore manager. Yes, that it was kind of like a natural fit. Um, nothing against Marines. I appreciate Marines. But he tried to run the bookstore like a Marine. And I tried to be like – at one point I actually had on my name tag, I typed out nice guy. And he got really upset at me for that because he said like what if you do something wrong and – um, some customer wants to complain about you, and they could just say, "Well, this nice guy did something wrong. He was not amused, so it went <laughs> from there um, so I was living in l a and you know, trying applying for trying out for various game shows, and then got fired had um, literally like nothing the day I appeared on Match Game and won $5,200. No, sorry, $6,200. Hmm. Um That's probably good money. It was very good money. It uh, came in handy. Um, then I had some good years as a writer. Um, then some bad years as a writer. Went on the game show Body Language. It's not as well known, but it was um, much more challenging, a lot more fun. It's a kind of a charades game. Okay. And um, at that point, I was actually in de- thousands of dollars in debt. Fortunately, I won $10,000 and wow. so I sort of was almost – yeah, like a little ahead of You bro. hung
1: up your game show shoes and called it quits?
0: I was actually on a third game oh, show. OK. Um, a syndicated short-lived game show called Trump Card that was um, uh, videotaped at one of the Trump uh, casinos in Atlantic City. Uh I just haven't put that on my resume. It's a little. Um, Did you meet yes.
1: Mr. Trump?
0: Trump had nothing to do with that the way uh, Trump had nothing to do with many of the things he put his name on. Um, it was just a, a game show that was canceled, I think, after three or four weeks. Uh, I won $1,000, though. So it was a nice day in Atlantic City. Wow. OK. So what was the musical background of your childhood when you were growing up? I've never been asked that. It's actually an interesting question. Um, I grew up in Chicago which is a lovely place to grow up. I love the fact that there was a – yeah, I grew up in a nice, warm neighborhood. Um, I like Midwestern values. I also love the excitement of being in a city. And from an early age, I used to go downtown on weekends and just with my friend Jay Wertheimer, we would just walk around and wander into hotels, You know, wander into um, the Civic Center. Um, we sat on some trials just because we were kids. It was all fascinating. And I would often get a ride home with my dad who worked downtown. And his favorite radio station was the all-news station, so I kind of grew up with you know not music but just in news after news after news. Um, we had a, a record player growing up, but it was hardly ever used.
1: What was the first music that you finally glommed onto yourself as a kid or a teenager?
0: Um, well, I certainly listened to the pop stations, and I became a big Beatles fan, um, as was everyone. But it was just I was at that wonderful cultural moment where um, suddenly music was changing and the music seemed to sort of represent a whole sort of new generation. Did you get any pushback
1: from your talk radio listening parents when you were listening to music more? I'm not sure they
0: noticed. Oh, okay. Do you remember the first music you owned? Yes. Um it was a record album called George Burns Sings. Oh, okay. More than into music, um, I was into comedy, and um, I was just at this department store, and there was this bin of cheap records, and one of the records was called George Burns Sings, and I couldn't resist buying it. And you knew who George Burns was. I adored George Burns. Um is part of my own sort of evolution as a writer. I got to know Burns and Allen and the Marx Brothers, and I was a huge fan of vaudeville comedy. If you were to listen to that George Bird sings now, would it all still be in there? I think so. Yes, <laughs> I listened to that album a lot. Do you remember, especially once my friends started making fun of me for having it?
1: Yeah, I was going to say it was probably an outlier for you
0: as a kid. definitely an outlier. Yeah, especially when I went to college and people were listening to hard rock or whatever it was yeah um, much more so alternative. Um, type of rock and music, and I was still listening, listening to George Burns. Sings. Burn sings,
1: yeah. Um, uh, do you remember a time earlier in your life when music moved you somehow or touched oh, you several times? Yeah, yes.
0: Like what? Well, one of the, the one of the main stories um, leads to one of the songs. So I'd rather save it for when we get to that song. Okay,
1: save it. Um, What about musical instruments? Did you ever play
0: one? Was there anything like that happening around you? Sounds probably like not in your family. but No, we were not a particularly cultural family. Um, My brother Cliff tried the uh, trumpet for a year or so. um, And I had a cousin um, who played the piano. And so whenever I visited them, I would play their piano, but nothing much beyond chopsticks. When did it become
1: apparent to you or when did you first suspect that you could write?
0: Well, I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, Actually, that's sort of a cheap crack. I'm trying to avoid those these days. Um, I've had enough success and enough compliments (laughs) that it occurred to me, I guess I can write. I've been writing since I was a kid. I wrote my first plays when I was 11. Um, So I always just sort of thought that way. And more than even plays, I thought comedy. Um, I – was a huge fan of All in the Family and the Norman Lear shows and Mary Tyler Moore and that whole – and MASH and that whole generation of comedy. And I just have loved what comedy could do. Around the same time, I discovered the Marx Brothers and was amazed. Oh, comedy could go there too. And growing up in Chicago, I went to the Second City and thought, oh, comedy could go there. Plus, it was just how my mind thought um You know, if there was an opportunity for a wisecrack or a pun, I could not resist. Um, Did you ever consider
1: being on the performative side of things instead of putting words in other people's mouth?
0: Yes. And in my early 20s, I took classes at the Second City and other improv groups. And sometimes I was inspired. Other times um, I would just freeze on stage, get off stage take a breath, and then the whole scene would come to me, which I thought was a sign that I should be just off in a corner writing rather than performing.
1: Hmm. Um, uh, at what point did you consider yourself a writer? You've kind of already joked around about the edges of it, but at what point did you go from, you know, I can put words down for my own self, but now I'm going to do this for the world and to try to make a living?
0: Well, those are two very separate questions. Um, as I said, you know, I've been writing since I was a kid, and in high school, um, I would draw these comic strips that are uh, called Bat Newt. Batman was a big series and this was Bat Newt. Yes. Oh, okay. The Newt version of Batman. Like um, the little lizard. Like the little lizard. Yes. <laughs> um, I showed absolutely no talent or potential for drawing. Um, the, the drawings were crude by anybody's standards. Um, but again, I like storytelling and comedy and, yeah, I would share this with my friends and uh, they would like it. And one teacher even liked it so much she put like episodes of Batnude up on the bulletin board for everyone to read. When I was in college, um, I thought I, would, I was a theater major but really not part of the Oberlin College Theater Department, which was very avant-garde. I'm not. Um, and so I just on a whim started writing humor columns one summer. Um, between my sophomore and junior year hoping that maybe I'd become a um, columnist in this school newspaper I when I came back um, at the beginning of my junior year I gave the four sample columns to the op ed editor the school paper um, he rejected three of them but published the fourth which went over very well mm-hmm. and so I wrote another one that went over very well and soon I became this kind of campus celebrity it was stunning huh. to me and as a very shy kid it was a wonderful experience. And I even won an award that Oberlin gave. I, I was the only non-English major to win that award. Hmm. So there were positive signs um, about my ability as a writer from early on. I think it took me a long time to sort of recognize that. There was part of me still thinking that being creative um, was not a mature thing to do. It was just some little aberration in my head. Uh, it took years and years before I thought, Wait a second! This is a t- real talent. This is a gift. I am fortunate to have this.
1: Do you have any of those early writing projects or the bat newts or anything like that still in your archives? They're in a, they're in a
0: storage unit. Yes, um, <laughs> gaining dust, um, which is probably where they belong.
1: Okay. Uh, well, it's time for your first song. Oh boy! Was this the one that you were going to tell the story about?
0: No, that's the third story. Okay. Well, then, um, never mind. Creating suspense. <laughs> yes. You yes. have to wait till for the, through the first two. Um, As you mentioned, I'm here in Fort Myers for two reasons. Uh, One of the reasons is um, for the last year or so, I've been performing. Going back to your question, it's interesting after all these years of deciding not to be a performer, to be on stage. And I'm performing this autobiographical monologue called It's a Beautiful Wound. Um, I consider writing as a memoir, but I think theater. And I just thought I really want to share this story with people. Several years ago, um, because I've just suffered a lot of emotional pain, I just felt stuck there for decades. Um, And even – it's not only a feeling. We all have our ups and downs. But it would actually manifest in my face and I would – my face can contort and lock. Like I, I look like I'm sort of wearing the Greek mask of tragedy. And I tried therapy and yoga and all sorts of things and none of them were quite working. And I read about um, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, particularly um, experiments that are currently being conducted using MDMA, better known as ecstasy, to help treat people with PTSD. I read about these experiments, and I just thought, I think this can help me. And um, I'll confess, I had already had a couple of recreational experiences with MDMA. And saw just how it opened my heart, how it made me felt good, not in a stone, oh, everything is great way, but just in a life is okay way. So I found someone um, who did this underground therapy, and I started on MDMA, was progressing, but also hitting this wall. And then we added psilocybin mushrooms. And I would have this experience about every month, every couple of months, took six months off months because I was working on a theater project and life was just consuming. And one day I finally had a breakthrough. I just felt like I was going to a divine, special place and um, a place I, in some ways, had never really been before and just sort of absorbed it, just uh, this again, like the sense of profound okayness. The, and then I went home and just was absorbing it. One of the things I think that motivated me to do this experiment in therapy and all the things I've done is I decided when I was early early in high school to stop crying. I was crying a lot, didn't know why. And so I just stopped, willed myself to stop. And I didn't cry when my parents died, when I got divorced, when my grandmother died. For decades, I just didn't cry. Hmm. And um, I was hoping that th- this would just open this experience, this journey would open my heart more, more so I could do it. And more practically not suffer the consequences of not being able to cry. So I had this breakthrough therapy session. And two days later, I was about to go for a swim. I love to swim. And right before I left, I heard that inner voice say, play, here comes the sun. And I thought, what? And I just heard it again, play, here comes the sun. And I liked the song. It it never had special meaning to me before. But I thought, I just need to listen to this. So I went to YouTube, found Here Comes the Sun, began to play it. And why don't we play the song? I'll tell you what happened afterwards. All right. I won't even have to announce it because we all know what it is. So I listened to the song, and I began to sob completely, fully, more than I had since I was 13. And it was a beautiful kind of crying. I associate crying with pain and sadness. And there was definitely sadness, but there was no pain. I just – it was a pure release. Um, the part of me – the writer part of me observing all this was just kind of astonished and also you know, filled with joy that I was finally crying. And I played the song again and sobbed again and played it again and sobbed and finally went for a swim. Uh, for months thereafter, if I played the song or heard it accidentally, I would just start to cry. That's um, changed over time, but I still associate – that song, not only with the ability to cry, but this wondrous effect of two things, one of the psychedelic assisted therapy that I've been on, but also on the importance of learning to listen to that inner voice, even if it doesn't make any sense to you at that moment.
1: What is it? Why is it? Do you think? Why that song? I mean, obviously, that song, it has a lot of resonance through the lens of what you're saying. But where did it come from? Is it your I subconscious
0: or your inner voice just said do it? It just said do it and, you know, more and more I just appreciate the mystery of these things. I could hazard a guess but, you know, when I've tried to do my mind, I've never convinced myself I know why. I just know that it has happened. And uh, do you listen to the Beatles a lot? I, I have, yes, and do and have become also a huge George Harrison fan partially because of the, the effect of that song on me that day. Huh. Where does music fit into your life in general? Um, this is almost merit it it's hard to say um I'm also a big fan of musicals um so that wasn't my first um album I bought, but the the um second and third were um I recorded a, a friend's version of um hello Dolly and Mame okay uh, While well, again, while other friends were doing the Beatles and Rolling Stones and right. things like that um I certainly appreciate music and where it could send us. What do you, how do you listen to music in your life? Do you have Um, it on your phone? Do you like? Well, I live in New York City, so I don't drive. So I don't listen to it while driving unless I'm out of town. And um, just, yeah, I just um, go to Pandora um, and Spotify and just play it a lot while I'm around the house.
1: Do you remember the last time you bought music that was a CD or a piece of vinyl or something uh, like that? Not
0: too long ago. I'm also into – boy, I'm always trying to figure out how to phrase these things. Um, There's a a series called Buddha Lounge which is kind of trance music, a little electronic dance. We have a
1: novelist who is on this show who listens to
0: that while he writes. I can believe that. Um, I can't listen to anything while I write. Uh, I need silence that the voices in my head could just appear unfettered. Um, But I enjoy listening to Buddha Lounge and have gotten that lately. Has um, has walking or, or has being in your house with Spotify or Pandora ever gotten you a, a new band? Like, has it introduced you to any new music because of the way that algorithm kind of tries to guess what you might like? Uh, you know, I wish I could answer yes, but the answer is probably not really. Also, it's a little bit like listening to the radio where I'm listening to it, but I'm not necessarily paying that much attention to it. Um, also, I because lyrics will distract me. Um, I mean, I love musicals and songs with lyrics. But if I'm using it to get some work done, um, generally, unless it is some artist I really already love, um, like George Harrison or Crosby, Stills and Nash, um, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Weather Report, I'm showing my age probably with all of this. Um, generally, it's just um, jazz or classical. or new age music. So they all kind of blur. You mentioned you like musicals. What's the most recent musical you saw? The most recent musical I saw was Tootsie, which is currently on Broadway. I saw it a couple of weeks ago. What's your uh, maybe go-to musical? Um, Yeah, I always have trouble with those questions because it it means I have to choose one over all the others. And you've seen a lot then. And I have seen a lot. It really depends on mood. So I won't even – yeah, I won't put one over the other. I I will say that – although I didn't choose songs from these musicals, that – among the first musicals I saw were Company, the Stephen Sondheim musical, and Pippin with the score by Stephen, by mm-hmm. Stephen Schwartz. And um, I got those albums and I listened to them like until they were worn out. So those are really etched in my brain and uh, really spoke to where I was at that point in my life, wondering what I was going to do with my life. The Alliance Youth Theater, they have a high school
1: mm-hmm. group and a middle school group. The high school group is doing Pippin. Cool. They're, they're like a month into rehearsals now. My daughter's the youngest kid in the cast. And I can't wait to see it because they do really good work there.
0: And it sounds like the perfect musical for kids in high school trying to figure out exactly what is special special, not special? What does, and what it does the, special it mean? It was the
1: first one that the theater director there, the youth theater director, Carmen, had to send out a disclaimer saying, now, are you sure you want your kid to be in this? Yes.
0: <laughs> yes there are, I, the other thing I do remember seeing it on Broadway, um, I'd never seen a Bob Fosse musical before. I'd only seen, you know, Fiddler and a couple of very mainstream musicals. And I was able to get like a cheap seat in the very front row and remember there being some very scantily clad women in it um, who moved with Bob Fosse, very sexy moves and really enjoying that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, have you ever seen – I showed my daughter this.
1: Uh, the Bob Fosse, uh, Michael Jackson nexus. No. So the Little Prince was a movie that yes. was made. If you watch outtake or not outtakes, if you watch scenes from that, yeah, there's like a there's like a side-by-side video that all of Michael Jackson's patented did moves. Came from Bob Fosse in that movie. Yeah, I can believe like that. Like you could just you could just, you watch it. You're you just could do like, it. Oh, oh, you could do it. That. Overlay Michael Jackson, and that's just. I'll have to do that. and yeah, it's on YouTube. You can't okay. miss it. Um, Okay, it is time for your second song. Okay, now I have uh, some choices for you because you said always by uh, Irving Berlin. You said whatever. Yes. Well, there's lots of them. So right. we have Frank Sinatra's version from 1947. Josephine Baker's version from 1927, Paul McCartney's version from 2012, and a Hungarian violinist named Katika-lenia, uh version from I Don't Know When.
0: So you get to pick between those four. Uh, they all sound wonderful. I'm pretty sure I've heard the Frank Sinatra version. I'm going to go with Josephine Baker because it intrigues me how she would interpret the song. Cool. Do you want to tell a story or you want to listen to it? Um, this time I, I will tell the story. Uh, When you sent me the instructions about how to choose the songs, I was abused by the instruction, don't choose the song you dance to at your wedding. And I did – my now ex-wife and I did dance to always um, as the first song at our wedding. That's not why I chose it. It was also the song my parents danced to at their wedding, which is also not quite why I chose it. Um, My mom was born in what – growing up, she called Russia, what we now realize is Belarus. And um, I'm Jewish. It was not a good time um, to be Jewish in Belarus or Russia. Um, There were pogroms. It was a horrible time. And uh, when my mom was a child, she and her parents and her siblings escaped and came here. And for years and years, she had no desire to go back. Um, But in 1992, my brother Cliff convinced my parents to go back. And I went with them. And it was a very emotional trip. Um, there's one point where my mom saw this woman walking down the street carrying grocery bags and the woman you know, was sort of hunched over from the weight of life and just sort of dragging. And my mom said, had I not left, this would have been me. My parents were pretty old then. They have since passed away. And um, my father was showing the first signs of dementia, which was certainly accentuated by the fact that we were traveling in yeah. a foreign country. And our last night there – Um, My brother Cliff and I and my parents went out to this very chic restaurant in St. Petersburg um, at a time where there probably was one chic restaurant in St. Petersburg. And um, my dad and my brother just started arguing because that's what they do um, to pass the time. It's a family um, um, trait, And – My mom and I were just kind of quiet. It was our last night there. I think the two of us were a little more emotional. And a violinist came by and started to play always. And my mom started to cry. And I said, why are you crying, mom? And she said, this is the song um, your father and I danced to at our wedding. So when I think of that song, I think not only of my wedding and not only of my parents' wedding – but the fact that my parents lasted, were together for 60 some years, hmm. last doesn't seem like the right, um, until uh, my father passed away. And that moment in St. Petersburg, where my mom, who also very rarely cried, was suddenly moved to tears at thinking about her entire life and her marriage.
1: Let's listen to it. This is uh, Always by Irving Berlin. It's the Josephine Baker version from
0: 1927. <laughs> One side note about that. Um, as I mentioned before, I'm a huge Marx Brothers fan. They really expanded my idea of what comedy could do. The first Marx Brothers musical was called The Coconuts with a score by Irving Berlin and always was written for that musical okay. and cut. Um, it just didn't seem to fit the so comic antics of the show, thus making it the only Irving Berlin musical that did not have a hit song in it. Hmm. Um, George Kaufman, who um, – um, a wonderful comic playwright who was um, wrote the book for the uh, musical, The Coconuts, wisecracked at the time. He would love the song to stay in if it would change from always to I'll Be Loving You Thursday. <laughs>
1: um, do you have any idea what version of that song would have been played at your folks'
0: wedding? I assume that my folks probably had a band at their wedding, and so it was um, the band leader singing the song. What about at your wedding? Uh, I don't recall. By that point, it was a DJ. Um, Yeah, I just don't remember which version it was.
1: What was that like to listen to that, you know, thinking back? Because, you know, we talk about this show creates memories in its own Self regard, you know? So next time, me and Richard and Tara here, always, we're going to be in that story with you a little bit too. Cool. You know what I mean? Yes. So, what was that like listening to that mindfully, hearing that version you'd never heard before, thinking
0: about your mom? It, it, it brought back several me- memories. Um, one, I think Josephine Baker had a beautiful voice and it was fascinating to hear her take on it. Um, I could, I thought less about dancing at my wedding than that night. Um, at the restaurant in St. Petersburg and why my mom could have tears not just from the memories of it but again by that point the two of them being married 60 years my dad in decline and that sense of I'll be loving you always and their deep commitment to each other Uh, my play Engagement Rules which is about to open tonight um, at uh, Theater Conspiracy in Fort Myers I was inspired to write that partially because of my own sort of question about what makes a marriage work, um, I haven't – my marriage – we were together a total of about 10 years, married six of them. Um, so I'm not the best example of it but certainly it's a question I've asked myself a lot and I look at my parents and asked a lot. ask a lot. And in writing engagement rules, it was important to me to really challenge these two couples. It's about a younger couple who are about to get married. They're in their early 30s and an older couple who've been married 53 years. And the two couples are really best friends with each other and really advise each other as they're all going through civil life crises together individually and for each couple. And so it was a fascinating opportunity to explore that whole question, what makes a marriage work, and particularly the importance of forgiveness and love and love really triumphing over everything else because there are so many good reasons not to be married to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever written any musicals or anything that has a musical element o- openly in it? Um, uh, ironically, the answer is kind of. Um, there is a uh, comedy of mine called "Funniest a Crutch, which is actually a series of um, seven short sketches about the theme of disability. And as I was writing it, I knew this was like a new theme or a theme that isn't explored that much in the theater. But I was writing some classic comic review and at the last sketch had to top all the ones before it. So it's actually um, a musical spoof of Cinderella called Criparella. And when – You have an interesting sense of humor, don't you? Thank you. you. <laughs> yes. Um, I also have friends with disabilities who have sort of encouraged me to go there, which has been very useful. Um, otherwise, I don't think I would have dared to sure. write a show called Cripperella. Um, Anyway, when Cripperella goes to the ball, um, I wrote a song called Their Own Kind of Dance. So that was um, my first time putting a song into a musical because that moment just needed a dance. Did you have to find a musician to help you make it work? Um, I actually wrote the melody too. I I have that kind of um, chutzpah or courage or whatever it takes. Um, I also just heard the music and lyrics together Um, and then – Since I live in New York and know lots of people in um, musicals, the director actually had a friend do the arrangement for the show.
1: Hmm. Um, Have you seen many live musical performances in your life? A lot.
0: Particularly musicals.
1: Um, I mean more like like rock bands or folk music or just, you know, music. music. Yes. Oh, yes.
0: Any pinnacle ones that come to mind? Um, Last spring, um, I was doing the show It's a Beautiful Wound in Bloomington, Indiana, and a friend was hosting me there. And um, he was connected with a group that does this kind of um, – well, it's an invitation-only party but like hundreds go and it was in someone's backyard and was kind of like this of mini weekend Woodstock. Um, so to just hang out with these people for the weekend after I did my show and rock on to this music was just a wonderful experience. Have you ever traveled a fairly long distance specifically to see a band or a show? Uh when I was at Oberlin, um being a Marx Brothers nut, um my friend I convinced my friends to go all the way to Pittsburgh where there was a touring version of the uh short lived Broadway musical Minnie's Boys about the Marks Brothers of the early days. Um that was the longest I've ever traveled for a show. And how far was that? Um whatever length it, it takes to go from Chicago, start uh, from Cleveland to Pittsburgh.
1: Okay, I have very little context in my mm. head for how far that is, but it, it was a few <laughs> hours. It wasn't that bad. Um, yeah. Let me, if, I had,
0: if I had one other thing though about musicals, sure, uh, yeah, and yeah. this is a very recent development. Um, a few years ago, there was this group called Boston Opera Collective okay. in Boston, and um, they do this annual. Show of short musicals, uh, short operas. Operas are not musicals. Short um, operas.
1: That seems incongruous.
0: Yeah, um, and um, the one of the composers found a short play of mine and wanted to adapt it, um, and I actually worked worked on the adaptation with with her and wrote sort of a libretto for it. And so I have a short opera based on one of my plays. And recently they asked me to do a second one, and so and there was a second play of mine. Um, called The Total Spiritual. And since I've become more interested in the musical form, I said this time I really want to focus on the libretto. And so I just finished the libretto for that on Monday. Have you ever had any of your work adapted for TV or film? Um, I wrote for TV when I was in LA. Um, it was a wonderful grad school. Um, Is I'd that recommend- when you wrote
1: for uh, Three's Company?
0: Oh, uh, yes, which I hardly ever bring up. But, yeah, now that we have social media and Wikipedia and things, uh, certain things you can't hide. Yes, I I, uh, wrote for Three's Company for a short time and was not a huge fan of the show then. Um, Did you get to meet any of the cast? Oh, yeah, I worked with the cast. They actually were lovely people. At what
1: point in the arc of that show, I know you're like, don't talk about this. Yeah, I really, (laughs)
0: yeah. this is. Let's put it this way. The most important thing is – I was a story editor on the show for a short time. It, again, it was not – I just didn't think – Who was the landlord that at show. that point? Exactly. <laughs> um, it was Mr. Roper. <laughs> and um, I, I, Norman Fell was a joy to write for. He was – actually writing for him was as much fun as writing for the, I the can, others. I can only imagine, yeah. And um, one of the episodes has my name on it. If you ever see a TV show with my name on it, do not assume I had anything to do with the final draft. Um, and sometimes I wrote things that – have other people's credits on. It's just the way TV credits work. Um, that night, rather than having a party or celebration, um, I went to see a musical um, with a friend. It was Chicago that was playing in L.A. at the time. Um, so that's where my priorities were.
1: Where, what else did you write for when you did do TV writing?
0: Uh, nothing worth mentioning. Nothing worth mentioning. OK. Um, uh, karaoke? Are you a karaokeer? Um, no I've done that a couple of times. Not really. No, um, not, I, not your I thing? do not uh, – it, uh, it is out of kindness concern for my friends that I don't expose them to my voice. If thrust into that situation, what would be your go-to song? Well, the one time I did karaoke, um, a friend and I sang, There's No Business Like Show Business, and that was a lot of fun.
1: Okay. Um, it is time for your third song, which you alluded to way back at the
0: beginning. Yes. And
1: I forget what the question was. It was the mm-hmm. first
0: time music moved you, right? Yes. So what do we got? Um, I'm aware the first two songs are associated with some – Sweet, tender, crying stories. This is the opposite. Um, between my sophomore and junior year of college, I wor- worked in D.C. as a copy boy on the Washington Bureau of the Baltimore Sun. Okay. It was an extraordinary experience as someone, especially for someone who wanted to be a writer and Washington politics has always fascinated me. And um, it was just cool living in D.C. And one day I went into the Smithsonian and they were just showing clips of various movies. And I saw a clip from the movie Singing in the Rain, the clip of Singing in the Rain. I had never seen the musical before. Um, I'd seen a few Fred Astaire, Ginger Roger musicals and loved them, but again, was not a huge fan of the form yet. And I just watched this with awe. I had never seen anything like it, especially the fact that not just the song, but Gene Kelly's dancing and that number, to me – captures the essence of joy as much as anything I've ever seen. And so it really showed me what music can do, what musicals can do, what theater can do, what dance can do. You know, I had been – I would seen other shows, plays and um, musicals and movies and stuff that made me sad or that made me happy, that made me laugh a lot. This was the first time where I just felt joy, Mm. and I was so moved by this segment that I told my friends, go do whatever you wanted to do, and I waited an hour so I could just watch it again. I was that stunned by it. How many times have you watched it since? Several. Huh.
1: Ready to listen to it? Yes. All right. uh, This is uh, Singing in the Rain from the 1952 film, Um, and by the way, you said make sure we get the one that has the rain. Yes. It's interesting. I'm glad you said that, because the soundtrack version doesn't. It's like if you get the
0: soundtrack... It's just the song. And in my 20s, I got the soundtrack version. it was amazed that it didn't have the music and I mean, it didn't have the rain in the background. And without the rain, to me, the song means nothing. Right. You need to have the rain to really capture that joy we've all had of dancing, moving, in loving, being in the rain. The rain. Oh, it's got it all. Wonderful. It does. It builds beautifully... Um, The song is a wonderful song. It's funny. It was originally written for a a 1929 Broadway movie musical, yes. I think like Broadway Melody of 1929, MGM spectacular when sound was first introduced. Yeah, yeah. And if you watch it, it looks really dippy. There's just all these chorus girls just sort of dancing in the rain. But it doesn't make sense. But they're not committed to the emotion of the song. Yeah. So it's just this forgettable song. But – from the first moment gene kelly sings it um it's clear that he just can't help but sing and dance in the rain i also couldn't i also could not imagine that without the the rain in the background yeah oh, it yeah. really would just ruin it, it really would <laughs> it, i should probably also add as i was listening to it i was both remembering the first time i saw it but i was also thinking about this day and age we live in where we like you know we have to warn people about everything Um, if there are children listening, they should probably not tap dance in the rain. they probably just slip and fall and hurt themselves. (laughs) Disclaimer. (laughs) Disclaimer. Yes, Um, I don't want to be sued by anyone who listened to this podcast and then started dancing in the rain.
1: Did that tempt you toward tap dancing at all?
0: I took a tap dancing class when I was in my 20s and gained deep respect for tap dancing because of it. Um, It's much trickier than it looks. Are you a dancer? Uh, I like to dance at parties. Um, generally, if no one's looking, um, yes, I love to just sort of let go and dance, but yeah, I have no necessarily no dancing talent. Do you remember your first slow dance? I'm trying to think. Uh, no, not really.
1: Okay. Um, you know, that song has sort of become almost iconic. You yes. Know? I mean, it stands on its own, it's in the culture, people yes. know it. I often wonder. When they were making that, if they could somehow feel that, you know, I don't know. It's it's weird to say that, but, you know, it's like, what are we, 69 years, 67 years yeah. later and, and it's still right there. I wonder if while they were making that movie and while they were filming that scene, it was like, this is amazing. Or if it was just another scene they were shooting, I another no song idea. they were singing, you know?
0: But again, given how many musicals MGM was making at the time, given the care that went into those musicals. Um, I would like to think they thought that way about all the numbers they did, even the ones that really didn't turn out that well.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Um,
0: The other thing that I think about sometimes when I think about that song, or that, not just the song, but that number in the musical, is how many millions of people it has affected and how we live in this time where I think so many people look down on art and what art can do. And when I think of the joy that that, uh, musical number has provided people um, I think that that is as powerful a force as almost anything on earth absolutely and needs to be, and that we need to sort of nurture and encourage people to sort of you know create their own version of singing in the rain whether it 's a play a comedic opera or whatever creative impulse they have
1: and you know in today 's world the distance between creation and ears and eyes is Right. Oh there. Yes. and so in some ways, you know, my 14 year old daughter, if she got out her ukulele and wrote a song that had the right hook, it could be 10 million of listens in a week. Exactly. If it was the right one, yes. you know, and it's really an amazing time. In some I ways know, for that, creators.
0: Yes, that. I mean, difficult in some ways, but yeah, this sort of democratization yeah. of creativity—the fact that it's easy to get stuff out there. Um, yeah, it's kind of wonderful. Uh,
1: what was the process that you used to get to your songs, and was there a fourth that had to go?
0: Not really. I just started, the first two came fairly easily. Um, certainly, "Here Comes the Sun," you know, represents a uh, transformative moment in my life. Um, also connects with the project I'm doing now. It's a beautiful wound, so that was easy. Um, always came fairly quickly, and then yeah, I thought of various shows and. Songs have meant a lot to me. And I didn't think you necessarily had a copy of George Burns Sings. So I decided to go with singing uh, it in probably, the Rain It's probably on YouTube. It probably is on YouTube <laughs> at this point.
1: <laughs> Richard, George Burns sings. Look it up. Um, uh, if you were going to start a band. Okay, Grizzly Bad Charlie. Up in San Francisco, where the weather's fair. They got a dance out there that's called the Grizzly Band. Oh my God. That's
0: George <laughs> Burns? <What>? Well, yes. <laughs> San it. Come on, honey. Do. Spry George, <laughs> George
1: Burns. <It's> Very spry. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's great to hear that song again. What's interesting about the um, album now CD George Byrne sings is um, I think there's a Rolling Stones. Uh, he actually sung and stone song on it. He sings, "You can't get, I can't get no satisfaction." Wow! So it's a very eclectic mix of songs and him trying to be sort of hip, um, which sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. But he's so adorable that uh, yeah, you're rooting for him with every moment.
1: Do you have any uh, uh, bands or? anything musical that you are into that is so far off the beaten path that you would want to give a shout out to it? Not really. Um, uh, If you were going to start a band, you you don't have to. But if you were going to start a band, what kind of band would it be?
0: Yeah, the problem sometimes when I'm interviewed on on shows like this is I actually like to think about these questions. There are other shows like this. (laughs) Well, podcasts, and I've been interviewed on the radio occasionally. It's like, oh, let me just go off in the corner and get back to you in a day or two. Um, I I don't know. I mean, I certainly have a couple of ideas for musicals in my head. So more than create, forming a band, it would be good to get together and perhaps write a musical someday. Um, something that would, um, I think, sweet and perhaps innocent and silly.
1: Good answer. I hear, I hear we got, we got something coming here.
0: Like this. Yes, this is George Burns doing I Can't Get No Satisfaction. This is like
1: that, uh, Bill Shatner doing weird I stuff. Exactly. No
0: it's important to remember about George Burns that um, he had this great career with Gracie, with Gracie Allen and then went into decline for a long time before he did the movie The Sunshine Boys. Um, this CD, or, you know, then album was made when no one was really paying attention to him. And so I also, as I get older, listen to this with, like, Go, George Burns. Yo, don't give up. Be perseverant. See what you can do.
1: <laughs> oh, uh, I've lost my train of thought. Man, George Burns doing that. That's something. Yeah, um, Mike, would you have expected to land anywhere near George Burns' satisfaction when we started? No, no. That's the beauty of this show. Um, uh, what would your 14-year-old self think of who you are in the world today?
0: I'm not sure my 14-year-old self your, your old self would have even recognized me or could conceive of it. So it would be a fascinating encounter. I think I would just want to go up to that. More than knowing what that 14-year-old self would think of me, um, I hope it would respect and appreciate me and certainly I think it would enjoy my wit. Um, I would want to go up to that 14-year-old and just say, listen to your voice, listen to your intuition, and go have a lot of fun.
1: Hmm. Um, you live in New York. Yes. How long yes. have you lived there?
0: Oh, 20 some years.
1: And you've lived in a lot of other – you've mentioned a lot of other Grew places. Grew up in Chicago,
0: then L.A., then New was, York.
1: Is, was, is New York your favorite place? That's why you've been there all this time?
0: Uh, no. Um, it's weird. I, I, you know, I say that and then people think I don't like New York. I like New York. I appreciate it. Um, i moved to New York both because I wanted the adventure of New York and because of theater. Um, I need to change my life. My life in L.A. was not working. So I'm very – glad I moved to New York um, I'm there now because of my friends and things but deep down I've always been a sort of small town boy which is sort of ironic given that the three places I've spent most of my life are yeah. Chicago LA and New York um, but I yeah the idea of um, living in a place where I could walk down quiet streets as I did last night here in Fort Myers um, a few weeks ago I spent a week in Massachusetts in a small town and just you know enjoyed the sort of the quiet of that town. Um, so, yeah, New York is my current home, but I'm open to suggestion.
1: When you're out on the road, do you drive yourself? You still, it, have, you
0: still have that in you? Um, I drive because sometimes play- it's the only way I can get from place to place. One of the things I do love about New York after a decade living in L.A. is not having to drive. Right. That subways um, will take me everywhere, and um, I prefer going by train or plane. Um I will get behind the wheel if necessary and I still can but yeah, it's, it's never been that exciting a thing to do for me.
1: Okay, it's time for you to pick and tell us about three people who you're going to recommend this show
0: to and who you think we should get on it. Ah, um, well that's fairly easy because I just thought about three people I know and like and appreciate in Fort Myers. The first one um, is very easy, easy. It's Bill Bill Taylor, the artistic director of theater conspiracy. I know that guy. Um, everyone in town should. Uh, most people should protect themselves from him, I say with a <laughs> smile. Um, we enjoy <laughs> rousing each other. Uh, 20 years ago when I was fairly new to playwriting, he chose my play um, Domestic Tranquility um, as the winner of what was then a very new new play contest. Um, And he did a wonderful job with it. It was great to come down to Fort Myers. I love to travel and visit other places as a playwright. Um, And um, Engagement Rules will be the fourth play of mine they presented. Um, And so – uh, the fact that Bill has kept this theater company going for 20 years to me is quite an accomplishment, and I think he would be a wonderful guest, okay. especially if you can embarrass and humiliate him during the show.
1: <laughs> oh, I will do everything that I
0: can because I
1: know Bill good, and he's a good guy. So who else?
0: The other um, is the couple Bob and Carrie Cassiopo. OK. Did I say they're le- – le- Yes. Great. Um, well, she's Carrie Lund, I think. But, yes. Yeah, Bob and Carrie. Um, they are a couple – yeah, she – I think she performs – she's an actress as Carrie Lund. Um, the I've gotten to know them over the years. um Bob ran uh Florida rep uh-huh. uh, for several years, um, and is now uh, I'll let them tell the story. um but they, they're now creating a new theater company mm-hmm. um in this area. and again, I appreciate um, them as people. Um, individually and as a couple. Um, I admire their commitment to each other that Carrie stuck with Bob through some hard times Mm -hmm. that he was going through in his life. And um, I just root for them. Um I would love to get them on the show and if if, if you
1: all are listening you guys can come on as a couple like we did with Amy Bennett Williams and Roger Williams and I don't think they he ran they ran it for a while I think they founded it and uh-huh. for a little while. Yes they, they did. <laughs> way yes. back. Um so great. Okay, that's perfect. I uh, all, all of them we want on the show. So Definitely. uh the last question that we ask our guests is uh, is there any music that you will avoid listening to any songs any styles of music? Whether it's the music that you don't like or the memory that you don't want, anywhere in between.
0: You know, it's interesting. A few years ago I might have um, said rap music because um, I really appreciate melody and a lot of rap seems just it's a rhythm over melody. And um, I just hate bad rhymes and so much rap has bad rhymes in it. Um, But let me quickly add this was before I saw Hamilton. Um, And this is before I got to – which sort of turned my head around in terms of what rap could accomplish. And this made me listen to then other rap music um, more deeply. And so at this moment, there isn't anything that I would say I'm against. And if I was – not enthused about it. I would actually want to look at that part of me and sort of see if I could stretch myself so I could enjoy it.
1: Do you think your uh, your time with the psychedelic assisted therapy also may be played into you being more open to different kinds of music?
0: Um, I don't know. I would want to take that question seriously that rather than just you know um, give a fast response. I do know that... Um, regardless of the state I'm in now when I listen to music and you know, I spend most of my life quite sober, um, I think I absorb music more deeply. I think there's something about um, I just can listen to it. I, my, one of the unintended results of the underground therapy I've been in is I think all five of my senses are a little more fine-tuned now and a little more sensitive so um, even as I was listening to these th- songs today, especially Here Comes the Sun, there's certain moments of instrumental um, – just instrumental moments and little um, moments of orchestration that I just thought were exquisite that I don't think I would have noticed years ago. Hmm. Any final thoughts? Oh, I think that was a fine one. All right. Well, thanks for doing this. Uh, my pleasure. I'm glad you invited me.
1: We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Callaghan is online content producer and sometimes host. Chris Duffis is executive producer. Our theme song was made by Dave 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 Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. For this week's Parting Tune, I'm going back to probably my junior year of high school at a friend of a friend's place. Rick Amons was his name. He was buddies with my good friend Biff. Rick was all excited about this music he'd come across that he wanted to share with me and Biff. I can clearly remember sitting on the floor of his bedroom in his parents' apartment, him putting a vinyl album onto a turntable and dropping the needle, turning the volume knob way up, and there it was. I was listening to Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon for the very first time. It was transfixing. It was transportive. It seemed kind of maybe dangerous is the right word. I'd had an earlier memory of hearing another brick in the wall at the roller rink when I was a little kid back in Kansas City, not having a clue what it meant, but did not know who Pink Floyd was. But upon hearing Dark Side that first time, I certainly began to get to know them and have quite a number of other musical memories, song stories, shall we say, seared into my being because of this album and the songs on it, which I will always return to when the time seems right. Here's the opening track, Speak to Me, slash Breathe. I'm Mike Connery. Keep listening.
0: Next time on Three Song Stories.
1: Can you throw one bar from your mustard on my My granny used to tell me that the yellow was yeah. for suckers. She'd slap the classic out of my hand to produce her favorite mustard. When I saw it, it had a greenish tint, I knew it was Dijon. She corrected, not just any Dijon, this is grape poupon. She put it on her hot dog, she put it on her pizza, she put it on her grape nuts and became my new teacher. <laughs> it was like my eyes were open for the very first time eating mustard on my lucky charms of feeling the sublime. Thank you.